Yeah, so if you've been with us this year, we've been doing a series through the book of Acts. Acts is a really important book. It kind of sets the template for what the church is supposed to be. Um, a really a vessel of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main character in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is the one that's at work in us and through us and in reaching into the community, reaching into to people's hearts. And, and like Jesus said, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what we learn in Acts is that apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't really do anything. We don't have enough strength to really change the world or, or, or change ourselves even, that we actually need to rely on the presence of God uh, in the Holy Spirit. And so we've come to Acts 17, and this is in the middle of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling around. Uh, first, he started with places he had been before, and he went to check in, okay, how's the church doing over here? How's the church doing over here? Um, and then he started branching into new territory, places that had yet to hear about Jesus. He started going into different towns, different locations, sharing the good news. And, uh, and, and so we catch him up there in Acts 17. And part of me wanted to spend time on just one part of this passage, but as I read it this week, I felt, well, let's, let's go a little bit bigger and look at what is going on through the whole passage. So what I think that Acts 17 says more than anything, and there's a lot that I could have focused on this week, but what I think it speaks to more than anything is the religious nature of our hearts, is that all of us have a propensity to be religious or seek religious. What do I mean by that? This is the question we're going to answer today is, what if everyone has a religious heart? And I know when I say the word religious, I need to define what that means. First of all, I just want to share a couple observations. One thing I've observed is that I know a lot of people who say they aren't religious. That there's, there's really nothing that they, no, no greater power, no greater influence that they serve. I, I know a lot of people who say that religion is, is great for the people that need it but I don't, I don't really need it. I don't really need a faith to belong to. I'm good on my own. But even though people say they aren't religious, I wonder, are they still searching for greater meaning and purpose in life? Like, I have an uncle who would say, I'm not religious, and I love my uncle so much. Yet my uncle loves nature. He loves fishing, and he lives by a river, and he just sold out his life to live in the trees, almost like Bigfoot, you know, but he just loves nature. And this is, this is the extent that he, he loves nature and loves fishing. He says when, when he dies, he, want his, he wants his ashes made into a fishing pole and given to his best friend. Like, that's, that's pretty serious, right? So I would say he's religious about nature, okay? Is that fair? He's a little religious about nature. Um, here's another example. Um, I found this in, it, it's an article from 2000, or 2018, uh, from, yeah, what decade is it? 2018, um, in the Atlantic, and it talked about how a church in San Francisco, this is no joke, held a Beyonce mass. Um, they held a Beyonce mass. This is what it said. It said, last month, almost 1,000 people streamed into a church in San Francisco for an unprecedented event billed as Beyonce mass. 
Many were secular. They used Queen Bey's songs, which are replete with religious symbolism, as the basis for a communal celebration, one that had all the trappings of a religious service. That seemed completely fitting to some, including one reverend who said, Beyonce is a better theologian than many of the pastors and priests in our church today. I don't know if that's true. Maybe somebody who listens to Beyonce can tell me if that's true. Um, but this is what Paul says to the, this crowd in Athens. He, when he addresses a crowd in Athens, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Right? I think we're all searching for something, to, some greater meaning, something greater than ourselves. Even it's, if it's a musician. Right? Even if it's a celebrity, even if it's nature, we're all searching for something greater than ourselves to belong to. And so Paul speaks to a pagan intellectual crowd and says, you are actually religious in every way. And so that's really what I want to focus on today. The word in Greek for religious or religion that Paul uses is daimon. And it literally means to be very fearful of God. Very fearful of God. So it's almost like to live in a religious way means that I'm living in fear of something bigger than myself. You can understand that, that, that the Bible talks about having the fear of the Lord. It's like this respect. Yeah, God is actually greater than me. It's like living in respect to God. Or, or, or if you don't have a loving God in your life, you live in fear of something bigger than you, something that could affect your life in, in a positive or negative way. The Oxford Dic Dictionary defines religion as this. It says, action or conduct indicating belief in, obedience to, and reverence for a God, gods, or similar superhuman power. Superhuman power. Um, so it's saying that the Oxford, the Oxford Dictionary is saying to be religious is to live in reverence to something bigger than, bigger than us. Told something um, up high, like don't, you don't mess with this. You don't, you don't touch this. And I, I wonder if, you know, like the Greeks back then, they had their mythology, right? Their, their gods and their, their stuff. I wonder if our current gods right now are like, you, you know, you meet someone who's really into Star Wars, right? Oh, don't mess, with, don't mess with Star Wars. That's canon. Have you ever heard that, right? It's like people are really serious about, about certain stories, about certain movies. Um, but to be reverent as a Christian is not a bad thing. Being reverent as a Christian means to live in, in, in respect to a big, big God. To honor God for being God. Like, God, you're God, I'm not. It's not about God getting on my page. It's about me getting on God's page. What does God want for my life? Reverence is not a bad thing. Reverence is to live in, with a healthy fear of something. Yes, God does have power. God does have control over my life. When Jesus was on the earth, he pointed out things that people gave that reverence or had that fear of, that, that they actually worship, they live for instead of God. And the main thing that, one of the main things that he addressed was money. He called out money as a God. He recognized that even his followers would struggle with money. And he says in Matthew 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
Here's the application. You cannot serve God and money. It's like you can't worship God and money simultaneously. And, and Jesus knew this would be a struggle for us. Jesus knew we would be prone to live lives based around money, based around income, that we'd make our decisions based around our income, that we might even live in fear of not having money or not having enough or just living for our retirement. How can I find my security in money? And it's not that money is evil, but the worship of money is, and that's, that's what uh, Jesus is getting at here. We can't actually serve Jesus wholeheartedly and serve money. Um, that's a half-hearted worship. Uh, Paul gives us another thing to consider in Philippians 3. He says this, uh, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. And then here's the key phrase. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul's saying another God is appetite. Whatever that appetite is, whether it's food or sex or whatever, we can also serve our appetites. And this also can conflict with our worship of God. And so I want to do two things as we look at Acts 17. I want to evaluate ourselves. And I also want to evaluate this world around us because we're meant to be lights in a world that's worshiping a lot of different things. And so the two questions that I want us to, and these are more personal questions. Um, this is not just a general broad question. This is more an open question for you. Um, do you understand how you are religious and do you understand how others are religious? So again, when I say religious, I'm not only talking about your faith, but I'm talking about where you find security, where you have, what, what you're really living for. What do you fear the most? Who calls the shots in your life? Because I think all of us are conflicted worshipers. Throughout the Bible, when, when, when God talks about worship, he says to worship with our whole heart. I see that phrase over and over again, whole heart, whole heart, whole heart. The reason is, is because we have divided hearts as humans, right? That we have distracted hearts, that we have hearts that change or that, that look at other things. And so we, the goal is to worship God, not in conflict with something else, but to worship God from a whole heart. And we can, we can split that heart with, with money or health or whatever, but God wants us to worship him with a whole heart. I was thinking about this this week in my car. I was driving, and I was thinking about just being distracted. I felt distracted, and, and I started praying the Lord's Prayer. And if you ever need just a reset to get back in the frame of mind, like, no, I'm, I'm going to come after you with my whole heart, just pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts out, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? I'm not living for myself. It's not about my name. It's about your name. And if you read the Lord's Prayer, it gives us that whole heart picture of how we're supposed to live. Anyways, what we find in Acts 17 is that Paul runs into religious hearts on the road. And there's two different types uh, of religious people that he runs into. One are, are the group of people that we've run into in every town, every place he starts, uh, ministry, Paul goes to the synagogue first and talks to the Jews, the Jews who have been waiting to hear about the, the coming Messiah, 
Uh, he starts there. He starts with, with the people who should be expecting Jesus. Um, and then Paul ends up in Athens, and he runs into Athenian Greeks. Um, these people are uh, both pagan and, and highly intellectual philosophers. This is... Um, all these major universities of the time are centered in Athens and all the, the Greek philosophies and the, like the greatest thought in the world is coming out of Athens. And so you have, um, you have one group of people that are, are living in the Old Covenant waiting for the Messiah. You have another group of religious people that are actually worshiping knowledge. Actually, worshiping knowledge, like knowledge is power, would be their their tattoos. You know, that would be that would be their thing in Athens. And so Paul preaches to both of these groups of people, and we're going to start out um, when Paul comes to the the, the region of Thessalonica. Uh, this is the, the church that develops here is who he wrote the book of Thessalonians to. Um, but we're going to start in Acts 17 verse 2 and look at what happens there in Thessalonica. It says. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. All right, so Paul comes to this town in Thessalonica, and like all these other towns he's vi he visited, he goes to the synagogue. That's like a very common thread. He goes to the synagogue. But one thing I really like about how Paul approaches these people is he doesn't come with a big hammer and just tells them they're all wrong. Uh, he doesn't come and, and just get on a megaphone and start shouting. What does it say? It says he reasons with them. I love that. He reasons with them from the scriptures. Here's what they're already attached to. Here's what they already know. And Paul isn't just saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He's saying, no, look at this. Look at, look at how, how everything that, that you believe has been fulfilled in Jesus. And I love that idea of reasoning with people because I think sometimes uh, Christians, when we try to share our faith, sometimes we're not very good at reasoning with people. We're not very good at meeting people where they're at and just talking to them about listening and talking to them about what they believe and then maybe showing them how Jesus could be the answer to their need. Because if we believe in a powerful gospel, like, I believe that Jesus is the answer to all our deepest needs. Right? And when Jesus came on the earth, he didn't share the gospel in the same way twice. He spoke to people's need and I think that's so important for us to get, that we, we share our hope in a way where others can see, wow, Jesus actually meets my need. Me meets my need. What, I mean, what are needs, right? Uh, loneliness, um, you know, lack of security, a lack of resources, like, like a lack of joy. Like Jesus can answer all of these things. And so I love that Paul reasons with them and he shows them this is why. This is why you should believe in Jesus. It's a dialogue. It's not a shouting match. You know, if Paul was here today, he would not be out in front of Starbucks with a sandwich board and a megaphone. He'd be sitting inside talking to people. 
and listening and finding out what they, what they believe. I was thinking about Jesus isn't asking you to be a billboard for him. He's asking you to be a witness. Just share what he's done in your life. And so how did they respond in this town of Thessalonica? It says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So it says some. It didn't say there was massive revival. Everybody checked the box. Everybody accepted Jesus. But it said there were some. There were some who followed Jesus. There were some that was convinced. And I think it's awesome that, that uh, Luke points out as he's writing Acts that it wasn't just like these, uh, the, these mainline Jews. It was also devout Greeks who were seeking God. And he mentions, and not a few of the leading women also which is pretty cool. Actually, you'll see in all three stops here, um, Luke points out that women came to follow Jesus, and that was significant, which would have been countercultural in this time, because in a lot of places in this age, women were still viewed as property. And so what we see is that the gospel is reaching out, maybe even to the periphery of the synagogue. People that, that maybe didn't feel valued in the synagogue were finding hope and, and meaning and purpose in Jesus. And I want you to look at the length of time. This wasn't just one sermon that Paul gave. It said Paul was there for three weeks. Like, that's a long time, right? Like, that's a lot of reasoning. That's a lot of questions being answered. That's a lot, a, a, a lot of effort would go into being there for three weeks and explaining, like, this is the truth. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just a one-time get up and preach and everybody gets saved. He was there to reason with them for three whole weeks. And so that's not the—so some believed, and then some, it says, were jealous. It's kind of the, the response. Some believed, and then other Jews, it says, maybe the most powerful Jews in the synagogue, which is most likely the case, were jealous. I find that word choice really interesting. It's like they weren't, they weren't convicted. Um, they weren't upset. Um, they weren't trying to defend what they believed, they were jealous. It's like they couldn't argue with what Paul was saying, so all they leaned back on was jealousy. And this, hap this word pops up five times in the book of Acts. Five times Paul preaches in a synagogue, five times the leaders of that synagogue get jealous. And every time, it always revolves around losing something personally for them. Uh, losing influence, Losing money, losing power, losing prestige, all because of an upstart preacher or someone coming in and performing miracles and preaching a truth that they just can't compete with. And so what I find interesting is that they were less concerned about what was true and they were more concerned about looking foolish, losing influence, losing power, losing money. And because of that runaway jealousy, they organize a mob, and they just try to get rid of Paul. And Paul doesn't just stay there. He, he runs to the next town, and he goes to the town of Berea. And that's interesting, too. Paul doesn't stick around and get killed, okay? He's not like, all right, this is it. He's like, no, actually, I, I'm going to go to the next town before they kill me. So he goes to Berea. And this is the only mention of Berea that we have in Scripture. There's no other recording. There's no other letter written to the Bereans. It's just this account. 
Um, but Paul does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel. And look at the response in this town. This is in verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So they were, they were pretty impassioned, right? They were following Paul from town to town. But I want to focus on, on the Bereans' response to receiving the news about Jesus. Uh, the, the phrase is more noble. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That they received the, the good news eagerly, like they were eager to receive this news. And that they didn't just take Paul's words at face value, they dove into scripture to make sure that it was true. And this is what they're famous for. Like if you hear about Berean ministries or whatever, it's like we dive into scripture and make sure that things are true. Um, but they're more noble, why? Why are they called more noble? Because they're not scanning the room and trying to figure out what everybody else thinks, right? They're not, they're, they're not like going to popular thinking to decide what's true. Um, they're not going anywhere except God's word to confirm that what Paul said is true. Like they are invested in God's word. Um, they revere God's word. And I was thinking about this in our own relationship with scripture. You know, we all have our own relationship with Scripture. Like, we all have certain thoughts. When we open up our Bible, like, things we think, like, yeah, this is good for me. It's like taking a vitamin, you know, or something like that. Like, we have different things we think uh, when it comes to Scripture. Like, I should read my Bible, but what I see in the Bereans is desperation. They're desperate to know God more. And they have the Scriptures, and they're looking at the Scriptures, and you hear stories today in other parts of the world where access to Scripture um, doesn't exist or isn't, isn't as prominent as it is here. It's harder to get Bibles. There are Bible smugglers, right? Carrying Bibles on airplanes, trying to get past security, risking their lives to, to get the Word of God from one place to another, crossing borders and boundaries to, to get the Word of God in other people's hands. And I think about, well, that's challenging to us, right? Because how are we engaging this book? Like, we, can, we have apps and, and, I don't know, like 40 translations or, you know, 140 translations. We have all sorts of resources um, around Scripture. And I don't think it's enough to say, well, we should read our Bibles. I think we have to say we, we need to love our Bibles, we need to love reading our Bible. We need to love, and I don't mean loving the book itself, but, but loving God by, by wanting to engage his word in our life, right? By being desperate to receive from it. I just want to read what David says in Psalm 119. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. He's basically saying, your word is my constant thought. Uh, I love it because it gives me wisdom. 
Uh, it connects me to you. Like, I'm, I want to dwell on it all day, right? And we know David was not a perfect person, but his heart is to love the Word of God, to, to love it and to pursue it and to think on it. And this is a similar heart to the Bereans as well. They measured what Paul was saying against their own engagement of Scripture, their own engagement of Scripture. And I don't think there's anything more beneficial for you than to be like a, a student of God's Word, to love it, to love your time in the Word, to, to dwell and meditate on God's Word on a daily basis. Because what you consume shapes you. What you consume shapes you. It shapes your mind and it shapes your heart. And our souls need God's word. Jesus said he's the bread of life, right? And when we read God's word, it, it, we, we are able to cons like, consume the truth of God. And so um, if we can just come each day ready to receive, like God can speak to every area of our life, positive and negative. And so my hope as a church is that we... Um, whether it's me speaking or whatever we do, that it would inspire you, inspire others um, to make God's word a priority in your life. So that's, that's the church in Berea. After Berea, Paul heads to Athens. Uh, he heads there alone. He leaves Silas and Timothy behind uh, to keep working with the people in Berea. Um, he's kind of forced out by this crew that came to uh, stir up trouble. And so every place Paul's gone, it's been the same script. It's been, I'm going to go speak to the Jews first um, and make traction there. Athens is a completely different script. It's a completely different experience because Paul comes there and he's just loitering. Like he's just hanging out by himself in this town. And it says that his spirit is provoked. Um, yeah, it says that his spirit is provoked by all of these false gods that he's seeing. Um, the city is full of idols, is what it says. Um, one book that I read said that at this point in history, Athens had more idols than people living in it. Like it was that stacked with, uh, with idols. And for me, I was unclear. Okay, are they just afraid of all the gods, and if they, if they make one mad, he'll wipe them out? Or are they just trying to respect everyone's gods? Like, oh, you got a god? Cool, we'll, we'll put that over here. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, all I know is that when Paul starts talking to people about Jesus, the philosophers that are there call him a babbler. What does this babbler wish to say? These philosophers, they look at truth with this soft lens. But here's Paul, and he's speaking a hard truth, a hard gospel, one way, not, well, we can figure it out type thing. But there are some there who are interested in his new ideas and his foreign gods. They want to learn. They want Paul to basically give a TED Talk. So they can learn a little bit. And so they, they send him to this big courthouse called the Areopagus, which is also known as Mars Hill. And, um, and this is what it says in verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. We read that before. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And we'll pause there. He goes on to explain that God is not far, that God is near, and that the time for ignorance is gone, that they need to repent and believe in Jesus. And so Paul, again, he speaks to religious hearts. He speaks to religious hearts. He tries to single out their fear. They're afraid that they're going to leave a God out and get in trouble. The unknown God. And he says, I'll make this unknown God known to you. He tries to show them that you're trying to find God in all of these different ways. All of these different ways that haven't actually led you closer to God. It's actually led you into a state of confusion. You are so saturated with information and idols, yet you're missing the point. And we could say that's so true about our culture today, right? We're so saturated in information and idols and things to worship that we're missing the one true God. You know, it says they spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's all they live for. They just, the, just that spark of learning something or, or having an intellectual edge on someone else. And it's true today. We talk today a, lot, today a lot about content and getting new content and learning more things. And there's such a value on that. But in all of their intellectual pursuits and all of their knowledge, they're missing the one true God. And so what Paul basically is saying is that by making space for all of these gods, by, by looking in all of these different ways, what it's actually teaching you is that God is far away, that God is distant, that God hasn't really revealed himself in a personal way. He's maybe this expression over here. He's maybe this expression over here. He's maybe this expression over here. You can't really know God, right? And Paul's saying, no, you, you can know God. He is not far. He is near. He is not expressed in all these different ways. He is near, and he has revealed, uh, revealed himself. And Paul uses the phrase, the time of ignorance has ended. And, and God is calling all men to come to himself. And then he talks about how the proof of it all is that, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. So this, this personal God sent his son to die for us and then was raised again. Like this, for people who believe all these different thoughts, it's hard to wrap their minds around the idea that there's this one God with, who, sent, who loved us so much, he sent one son to die for us and then raise again. And all of truth rests on that fact. And so this is what, what it says. It says in 32, it says, um, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. I practiced that, so I, I got nailed the pronunciation. <laughs> and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Again, He's, he's naming certain people, and women are mentioned three times. Like, this is significant. And there are three different reactions we see. Three different reactions to this truth. Some mocked. The idea of a resurrection in this one way, in this one God who became a man, sounds ridiculous. 
So some mocked him. They dismissed him with laughter. Others delayed. Right? They said, well, come back again. I'll think about it. Just come back. Maybe share a little bit more later. Maybe we can sign you up for next semester. You can do a class. Um, some of us like to delay things, right? Like to delay decisions. Like, I don't want to act on this today. I need more information. Let's talk later. You know, we just keep pushing it out and pushing it out. And it, it, what it really is, is it's indifference towards God. It's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I'll keep pushing it out. I'll keep pushing a decision out. I'll keep pushing change out. And uh, so that's one. So there's the, the, there's the mocking response. There's the delaying response. And then there's the third response where it says, God, you know, some believed. So then some believed. They acted on it right then and there. Uh, God touched these hearts and they believed. And so Paul doesn't face, like, complete rejection. There are people who come to faith, even in this pretty intense environment, there are people who come uh, to believe. But overall, Paul views this whole trip, whole experience in Athens as a discouragement. It's like, the, I just, the gospel was not reaching these people. And he, he viewed it as a discouragement. But I want to get back to our question. I know that's a lot of information um, and, and what it looks like to be religious. But let's go back again. How do you understand how you're religious? It's important for us to know what's forming our heart. What, what, what are we actually letting inside that's forming our heart? What, what do we ultimately fear? Are we being formed in relationship with God, or are we kind of half-hearted in our worship? And if we are, there is grace. We just need to come back and worship God wholly, give our heart to him again. We all are at times conflicted worshipers. And then the second question is, do you understand how others are religious? We have people in our lives that, man, we, we want them to experience the, the love, the truth, the, the knowledge of God. We want them to experience a relationship with Jesus. Do we understand what they fear? Do we understand what they're living for? I want to come back to the idea that Paul reasoned with people. Paul met them right where they're at. Paul shared Jesus with them specifically to their need, specifically to their deepest fear. And we can do that too. If, 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 if you or someone in your life um, feels the fear of not belonging or not knowing who you are or being afraid of living a meaningless life or being afraid, will I even survive the month um, with the money I have? Or will I ever overcome the mistakes I've made in my life? In Jesus, the answer is yes. Jesus is an overcomer. Jesus invites you to live for his kingdom, not yours. Uh, Jesus, uh, in Jesus, you are a child of God. Like, Jesus is everything. We have a pretty great gospel. It's about life transformation. It's not about changing behavior. It's about experiencing God his presence, changing your life. And this is the point I want to end on today. Um, Jesus is freedom from our deepest fears.
Jesus' freedom from our deepest fears, from your neighbor's deepest fears. Jesus is freedom. He answers every heart's cry. Every heart's cry. Uh, Jesus gave sight to the blind. He made the lame man walk. He told the demons to run. Like He has power over anything we could possibly fear, over our trauma, over, um, over our finances, over our sin, even over our loneliness. He enters in and replaces that with a joyful relationship with him. And so we can be confident that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to all of our fears, to all of our, all the ways we try to be good before God. He's the answer. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm, I'm thankful, God, that you are a personal God. I'm thankful that uh, you decided, um, you were sent by, by God to actually enter into our time and space. Lord, that you actually love us, that you love us enough to die for us and make a way for us to, to connect with God. And Lord, there are a lot of ways we try to connect with God um, or connect with something bigger than ourselves that, that lead us astray. And I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself um, to us in a whole new way today, in a whole new way this week, Lord, that we wouldn't just try to be a good person, uh, that we wouldn't try to live for money, that we wouldn't try to live uh, just to, to be comfortable or whatever it is. Lord, I pray that we would live for you, that we would experience more and more the joy of being in relationship with you, um, the love that you have for us. And God, that, that we could be your witnesses, that we could tell others about the freedom that we've experienced in Christ. Lord, the world needs freedom. The world needs freedom, and it's only found in relationship with you. And so we thank you, God, that you've given us that freedom in Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to share that with the world. Lord, that we would be a people that are set free, uh, that we wouldn't be slaves to our sin, that we wouldn't be slaves to um, our jobs or anything like that. We would just be, be sons and daughters of you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.